Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for August 9th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast regarding major legal issues that are playing out in appellate courts, both in California and on the national level. This week's show will focus on the latter of those two, with a look at how the past U.S. Supreme Court term impacted an important area of law where we've been anticipating some movement, that being the power and breadth of the administrative state. The High Court's two most recent additions and the three conservative-leaning justices they joined created a majority this term that many expected to begin to pare back the size and authority of the administrative agencies. The myriad executive agencies like the Departments of Justice and Veterans Affairs, the Social Security Administration and the EPA, they help carry out everyday government functions, but in so doing have occasion to both make regulations that give precision to congressional statutes and also to interpret the meaning and reach of those regulations. Those rulemaking and adjudicatory functions, though particularly in the eyes of the second most junior justice, Neil Gorsuch, can begin to resemble the sort of constitutional duties, namely lawmaking and law interpreting, that are reserved for the legislative and judicial branches. This term, two cases arrived at the court that seemed to present Gorsuch and the newly strengthened conservative bench a chance to significantly shift some administrative agency power back into the purview of courts and Congress. And today we're going to examine just to what extent the court took that opportunity. As we'll hear, the short answer is not as fully as it could have. But we'll also discuss some ways in which the court set itself up to make more significant administrative law changes potentially in the future. Our guest this week, John Claude Andre very familiar with both the Supreme Court and with administrative agencies. He's argued before the High Court multiple times and heads Sidley's West Coast Supreme Court practice. He also spent several years in the Department of Justice, including as Chief of Criminal Appeals in the U.S. Attorney's Office for California's Central District. Before I welcome in John Claude, I do want to give one quick reminder to listeners that aren't yet aware. After listening to this podcast, you are very much encouraged to take a quick true-false quiz to claim one hour of California CLE credit. Doing so is easy. Just find this podcast at dailyjournal.com. It'll be on our front page there, and you should find the associated quiz easily enough. Now, much of our content resides behind the DJ paywall, but we are happy to make this podcast freely available. And your taking those CLE tests helps us continue to do that. Okay, I'm glad to welcome in now John Claude Andre, a partner at Sidley here in Los Angeles. He heads the West Coast branch of the firm's Supreme Court practice. He's a is a DOJ veteran, as I mentioned, and currently a lawyer representative to the Ninth Circuit's Judicial Conference. John Claude, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. I'm really happy to be here with you. We have two cases that we'll unpack here in, in some detail that the, the court dealt with towards the very end of its last term, and which both sort of shaped up to, to change a good bit the, the state of the administrative law system, the administrative agency um, constitutional power dynamics. Turns out largely the status quo was retained, though with some to be continued in the cases. So we'll dive into to both of those. But first, we'll start a bit broader, just in terms of what is the judicial battle over the administrative state all about? And could you sort of broadly sketch the uh, opposing views here? Sure. So, I, you know, the judicial battle over the administrative state effectively has two components. Uh, one is, to what extent can Congress delegate rulemaking functions to uh, the executive or executive agencies? I said the executive or executive agencies because one of the cases that I think we're going to talk about today, uh, Gundy involved the delegation to the AG himself. And of course, he's not an agency, even though he's an agency actor. Uh, and the second component is, you know, to what extent can courts review those agency-made rules? 
I would say the real fight is played out with respect to the second component, which is to what extent courts can review those agency-made rules. And that, that kind of stems from the fact that in, in most areas of the law, when the decisive question in a case is what is the best and binding legal interpretation of a statute or regulation, the answer is that that's something for the court to decide for itself. But in the area of regulatory law, the answer is different. Ever since uh, the 1984 case of uh, Chevron v. NRDC, the governing rule has been that if the intent of Congress in a statute is clear, then the court does as you would expect the court to do. Uh, it interprets uh, the statute and that's the, uh, the end of the matter. Um, but if uh, the intent of Congress is ambiguous, then the court will defer to the interpretation of the statute offered by the agency, so long as it's reasonable, even if it's not uh, what we call, quote, unquote, the best interpretation, the one that the court would have adopted itself. That's hugely significant because Chevron is invoked by the government all over the place. It is Chevron is the most cited case uh, in the federal courts and has been for decades. Um, and it's been applied to a whole host of different regulations. Um, in the last administration alone, uh, some of the most significant regulatory decisions were defended in court under Chevron. That'd be the FCC's decision to impose net neutrality requirements, uh, the EPA's greenhouse gas regulations, uh, the Department of Labor's decision to impose new requirements on investment advice. Um, and all of those regulations that the government defended in court based on Chevron were uh, were 180 degree turns from what the prior administration has done, and so uh, given that in those instances the government was able to come in and say, well, the statute's ambiguous, our agency can fill the gap, then the agency was allowed to choose the uh, the interpretation of the statute that it preferred, um, and then basically tell the courts that they were hands off in reviewing those uh, decisions. So in a nutshell, long winded one, that's uh, that's basically Chevron deference. The second form of deference that has bubbled up um, and bubbled up this past term is the deference doctrine known as AUER, uh, A-U-E-R, deference. Um, and under AUER, an agency is given either even greater deference by the courts, and AUER applies to an agency's interpretation of its own ambiguous regulations. So Chevron is gap-filling for an ambiguous statute. AUER is um, interpretation of an agency's own regulations. And basically, our uh, at its core, or if I should say pre-Kaiser, one of the other cases we're going to discuss today, our um, requires deference so long as the second or sub-regulatory interpretation by the agency um, is not plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the regulation itself. So the battleground really come to be shaped by a number of statements by members of the court criticizing these deference doctrines um, in the past decade. Justice Thomas has probably been the most vociferous advocate against these deference doctrines. Um, He's questioned whether the deference doctrines violate separation of powers by effectively allowing agencies to say what the law is instead of the courts. Um, And as you'll recall, in Marbury versus Madison, uh, Chief Justice Marshall said that it's the court's job to say what the law is. Chief Justice uh, Roberts, joined by Alito and now retired Justice Kennedy, um, has described these deference doctrines as a powerful weapon in an agency's regulatory arsenal, warned of the danger posed by the growing power of the administrative state. And we know that Justice Gorsuch uh, largely shares those views. Even before he joined the court, 
uh, he concurred in an opinion that he himself had written for the Tenth Circuit, um, explaining that these deference doctrines were the, the elephant in the room, and they permitted executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power, and so that maybe the time has come to face the behemoth. And of course, now we also have Justice Kavanaugh on the court, and like Justice Gorsuch, we know from his pre-Supreme Court writings that he shares these views as well. He, uh, he wrote a law review article um, for the Notre Dame Law Review, where he basically said that you know these deference doctrines encourage agency aggressiveness <clears throat> under the guise of ambiguity, that they can agencies can stretch the meaning of what Congress intended to accommodate their preferred policy outcomes. And he saw this both firsthand in the White House and then uh, from the other side as a judge. So you have all these criticisms. And what we saw in the bar was that, you know, many litigants were starting to craft their petitions for certiorari uh, to try to get the court to seize on these statements uh, by members of the court and potentially overrule these deference doctrines, overrule Chevron and overrule our. And we didn't see these petitions get much traction until the last term when Kaiser was granted. And then kind of the surprise case that also is in the field is the, the Gundy case. Is it fair to say that, that sort of the, the salience of, of the questions around administrative law and the administrative state have, have grown over you know, the past few decades? Folks might look back to the New Deal era when you, you get a spate of additional agencies created. You have a bunch more in, under the, the Nixon administration and related to like the EPA and, and, and similar agencies. Is it, is it just sort of been a gradual accretion of administrative power that's maybe starting to some think reach a, a critical mass? I think that's right. I mean, although, you know, as I guess you're alluding to that there's, there's expansion and contraction and then re-expansion. And, and I guess the, the net effect of decades and decades of expansion, contraction and re-expansion, uh, is that there is a, a net sum total expansion. So the administrative state, you know, has, has grown. And that, that is something that has animated some of the concerns of members of the court. Which is that, you know, basically you, you have agencies deciding how businesses conduct their business and how, uh, individual citizens live their lives and that that really should be the province of Congress, um, with the courts as, as the check on that. But I guess the, I, I think that the salience of these questions also is, is somewhat, uh, exacerbated by the political realities of, of the country we're living in these days. First, Congress isn't passing that significant legislation because they're so gridlocked. So, so someone has to to regulate. Um, and if Congress isn't going to do it, who is? Uh, so, you know, that both means that there's at least in certain administrations more regulations, but but it also means that you know even with old legislation, there may be questions unanswered, and whether through formal rulemaking or through informal subregulatory interpretation. Uh, the agencies have to again, kind of you know, fill fill the gaps and ensure that um, there are rules out there for businesses and individuals uh, to operate. And then the other thing is, I think, because electoral politics are are so contentious and divided these days, you also see that every time there's a change in party in the White House. I alluded to this earlier with respect to the various regulations that uh, the government defended in the past administration. You, you do see a lot of, you know, flip-flopping or 180-degree turns. You know, as a result, that that always raises 
concerns and skepticism because people who thought that they were governed by one rule all of a sudden after an election realized that they may be governed by a rule saying the exact opposite and their only place to really, well, they have two places to look. One is to go back to the agency uh, and the second place is to look to the courts. Um, and then when the courts you know, sometimes respond with, well, our hands are tied here, then that gives ammunition to critics of these these deference doctrines. That uh, that potential for flip-flopping for agencies to be headed by you know a president from alternating parties has always made it seem to me a, a bit puzzling that the issue here, the trimming back of the administrative state, seems somewhat partisan. Um, you know, for folks like us that pay attention to these sort of things, when President Trump began to to nominate Supreme Court justices, one of the things he started to hear first of all was that what happened, that Chevron might be trimmed back, that uh, potentially overall the administrative state would be cut back. Um, but of course, I imagine Democratic partisans would like to also rein in agencies like, say, EPAs that um, cut back certain regulations or um, agencies that uh, take immigration enforcement actions that dem- Democrats might find problematic. You know, why does this seem to break on on party lines? I think the distinction probably is that judges who align themselves with conservatives or conservative politicians also tend to be textualists and originalists. And the, the arguments against deference doctrines are in many respects grounded in textualism um, and originalism. So, uh, you know, Article 3 confers the power to the courts to say what the law is, as I alluded to earlier. And doctrines prescribing only limited judicial review are inconsistent with that broad conferral of power. Um, Article 1 confers power to Congress to write the laws. So if legislative rulemaking is handed over to agencies, then that violates Article 1. And so, again, if you look at the, the justices on the court who've been most critical of these deference doctrines, you know, one of the various arguments that they've made as to why the doctrines are bad or improper is, is really kind of an originalist or textualist one. And so I, I think that's probably why more often than not, or I would say almost invariably, you see the conservative justices wanting to overrule these deference doctrines um, and the liberals being fine with it. I, I guess the one counterpoint is, you know, it, obviously Kennedy, I think, is, is hard to pin down as a conservative or a liberal, and he was critical of these uh, deference doctrines. And and Breyer has offered some hints that, that he's suspicious of them as well. But certainly the, the current liberal core of the court, Sotomayor, Kagan, um, and Ginsburg are, are quite comfortable with them. We'll, we'll dive in here to, to the first case. We'll speak about Gundy versus the United States. And at the heart of this case is, is a doctrine called the, the non-delegation doctrine. It relates to what we've been talking about, that Congress you know, generally is prescribed the constitutional authority to make the laws and that it shouldn't or it cannot delegate that power to other parties, other non-legislative parties, like say in the executive branch to uh, to make um, laws or to do things that seem too similar to, to lawmaking. Do I have that roughly correct, that description of the non-delegation doctrine? And, and how is it uh, played out in the courts in recent decades? As I understand reading the, the opinion and the, the briefs here, it's been pretty um, seldom for the court to step in and, and strike something down based on this doctrine in the past almost 100 years, right? Right. No, you, you have all of that right, Brian. Um, so I guess for, for starters, the court has only invalidated two statutes in the last 100 years under the non-delegation doctrine, uh, both, uh, both times in 1935, both statutes that were part of the New Deal. 
Um, and ever since, basically, the doctrine has, you know, laid dormant. Um, so it's interesting to see it, it rear its head again uh, in, in Gundy, which, uh, of all things, you know, was a criminal case, too. So it wasn't, you know, kind of your, the kind of case you traditionally think of when you think of the uh, administrative state. Let's get into exactly what the power supposedly delegated. This is a 2006 law, right, relating to uh, sexual offender registration. Uh, tell me about that and about the uh, purported delegation of power here. Sure, sure. And, and, and I, I apologize to the listeners, but, uh, you know, the a lot of the, the, the administrative regimes that, that are at issue in these cases are, are horribly complex. It takes about three or four steps to even get to the actual um, precise regulation that's, that's at issue before the court. So, uh, yeah, in 2006, Congress enacted SORNA, the Sex, uh, Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act. It requires persons convicted of sex offenses to register with their state as a sex offender. And the statute required registration in at one of two moments, either sometime before the sex offender was released from prison, or if they were not sentenced to custody within three days of their non-custodial sentence. Now, what's critical here is that the statute was enacted in 2006. And as you can imagine, there are lots of people convicted of qualifying sex offenses who are already out of prison. Um, or never were in prison and their sentences were imposed more than three days before the statute went into effect. So recognizing this issue that there were these um, uh, lost sex offenders or sex offenders for whom complying with the registration requirement would be impossible, uh, subsection D of the statute delegated to the Attorney General, and I'm quoting now, the authority to specify the applicability of SORNA's requirements and to prescribe rules for offenders who could not comply with the registration requirement upon enactment. Thereafter, the AG promulgated rules making clear that pre-act offenders must still register even if they could not comply with the requirement they do so before release from custody uh, or within three days, and, and specified how they need to go about uh, so registering. And because failure to register gives rise to a, a new federal criminal offense, the United States prosecuted the petitioner here, Herman Gundy, because although he was a pre-act offender, he never registered as a sex offender. We'll dive into to the opinion here um, and its, its uh, substantial arguments. But first, just to speak of the, the split, you know, it's a, it's a fairly interesting one. We'll note there's uh, only eight justices that um, were participating in this case. I think it was argued just before Kavanaugh had got onto the bench last year. And so we have plurality opinion of, of four justices in the liberal block, then joined by a Samuel Alito. T- tell me about this uh, split. So it, it is an unusual split um, insofar as Justice Alito joined the liberal block of the court to create a majority. Because as you noted, th- there were only eight justices, I don't want to say available, because by the time the case was decided, and in this case was the longest pending case of the term, it pended for almost 10 months um, Justice Kavanaugh was a justice of the court with the power to vote uh, by the time the case was decided, but he was not available for oral argument. And for reasons that only the court knows, uh, the court decided to proceed with only eight justices. And that presents a problem because if the court is four to four, then the court will affirm the lower court judgment by, quote, an equally divided court, typically a one-two line opinion, I mean, really it's an order, but it is in the United States reports, um, they will affirm that way. And it has no precedential effect because the court's not saying anything. Um, now, of course, you may have 
you know, concurrences and separate opinions, but those don't have the force of law either. So when you have this eight justice problem, um, if the court wants to actually say something and opine and, and make some law, then someone has to defect, <laughs> for lack of better terms, from uh, the four justice dissent and, and join the majority. And that's what Alito effectively did here. Um, I, you know, I, I look at his opinion, which is, is very short, and he basically says, you know, I'm, I'm going to go along with the majority here because there's not enough votes to call into question how we apply the non-delegation doctrine, um, not enough votes to to reinvigorate it. And so I, I will go ahead uh, and join the liberals here to, to cast my to cast the fifth vote. But I, I really do think it was essentially a necessity vote that the court somehow, you know, behind their closed doors decided that they didn't want to have they didn't want to say nothing on non-delegation. And so Alito um, added his vote to the liberal bloc. And in that liberal bloc, so as you described, um, Herman Gundy here is saying, you know, hey, wait a second, the attorney general is basically allowed under this law, the attorney general, not part of the legislative branch, part of the executive branch, the branch not generally prescribed with making the laws. He is tasked with deciding how this law basically applies to folks like me that couldn't you know register under its specific terms? That seems like a pretty big delegation. But the plurality opinion written by Justice Kagan sides against Gundy and, and says um, that delegation doesn't violate the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, t- tell me a bit about the the thrust of the the plurality opinion. So what's interesting is you know I think if you when you read Justice Kagan's opinion, she, she actually makes the case sound really easy, right? Although we know it wasn't easy because it been appended for ten months, um, and it arguably was four to four with Alito, you know, just throwing his hands up and saying, "Okay, fine, I'll I'll, I'll break the tie." Um, so it's not an easy case. Um, what she did is she repeated kind of the the off-stated uh, supposed standard for non-delegation which is that a delegation will be upheld so long as there's an intelligible principle to guide the delegee's exercise of discretion. Um, and, and here's where she kind of made the decision sound easy. The defendant had argued that the provision granting the AG the authority to specify the applicability of SORNA was an impermissible delegation. Um, and uh, Justice Kagan basically knocked that down by pointing to a 2012 decision of the court, also under SORNA, and and if, if, if you're not uh you know always following the criminal decisions of the court, SORNA is is kind of like uh, the criminal ERISA. It's a, it's a messy statute, and the, the court um, interprets it a lot because there's a lot of disputes over how to apply it. So in 2012, in a case called Reynolds, the Supreme Court decided that SORNA may apply to pre-act offenders, and so the move that Kagan made was to basically say that to the extent that Mr. Gundy is complaining about the delegation to the AG of whether SORNA should apply in the first instance to pre-act offenders like him, well, Reynolds already answered that question, and Reynolds already answered that question as a matter of statutory interpretation. And so once you take the whether the statute applies component off the table, then the case becomes pretty easy because then you look at what else the AG is doing and there the AG is just prescribing rules about, you know, how and when pre-act offenders should go about uh, registering. And that then falls comfortably within um, the kinds of application decisions 
that Congress typically delegates to agency actors and that courts typically uphold. So that's kind of how she made it seem so easy. And, you know, just to kind of put a, a ribbon and a bow on it, um, to wrap up her opinion with her kind of traditional, uh, you know, sharp writing, she declared that if, if Soren's delegation here is unconstitutional, then most of the government is unconstitutional, dependent as Congress is on the need to give discretion to executive officials to implement Congress's programs. We'll get to two Neil Gorsuch dissents here in the two, two cases we're going to talk about. And clearly he disagrees with that proposition and, and, and uh, Justice Kagan's rationale here. Tell me about his dissent. It definitely seems like um, he viewed this case as a good opportunity to, to add some some life back into that non-delegation doctrine. Justice Gorsuch is obviously a very um, impassioned jurist, um, and there are certain issues that he uh, you know, cares about a lot. Again, as we know from before he even joined the court, he cares about these delegation and judicial review issues a lot. Um, and so his dissent here was actually 20% longer than, than Justice Kagan's um, opinion. I, I think his, his main problem with the non-delegation doctrine, and we'll talk about uh, our, his problems with the hour deference doctrine later. His main problem is that <clears throat> I think he believes that the intelligible principle standard that, that Justice Kagan started off with, um, in framing her opinion, that it's basically mutated into a, a rubber stamp for all delegations. And that if you were to go back in history and look at the early cases where the court had both applied the non-delegation doctrine to invalidate statutes such as Schechter Poultry and, and Panama Refining, um, or in cases where uh, the court had declined to find an impermissible delegation, that in those cases, that there really was an intelligible principle about what gaps the agency actor had to fill. And it, here, basically, he thought that uh, SORNA didn't didn't provide that intelligible principle. Um, that, yes, if you look at all of the interpretive tools available, including, you know, legislative history and the overall text and purpose and structure of the statute, which are all tools that we use when interpreting text. But, you know, only if you look at all of them can you maybe divine uh, a general policy uh, on the part of Congress with SORNA, and that policy being that it favored registration for sex offenders. But, But again, he basically thought that saying that that general policy is an intelligible principle that's just that just goes too far. That there was not a clear, intelligible principle in the statute um, intending for the AG to be able to um, decide whether people like Mr. Gundy had to register. From sort of reading the introductory tone of the dissent, it, one would be forgiven for thinking sort of that Gorsuch thinks really nothing should be delegated to um, the purview of um, executive actors. But then he does set out. Uh, three different areas that are sort of, you know, the right type of uh, situations where delegation is is totally fine. Um, can you tell me about uh, what he describes as, as permissible delegation? So, one, I think he believes that when when Congress is express about making its policy decision and then equally express about telling an agency which details to fill in, that's okay. And so, again, in, in Soren, I think his problem was that he, he didn't feel that Congress was express enough in saying, okay, Mr. or Ms. Attorney General, here are the gaps that, that we want you to fill. Second, uh, he said that it's okay to delegate um, certain fact-finding functions to you know, quasi-adjudicatory executive agencies. 
And so, you know, the example that readily comes to mind, and I think, you know, we're all familiar with, is uh, immigration judges and the Board of Immigration Appeals. EOR, the Executive Office for Immigration Review, which is the, the component in which the board and IJs sit, it's actually part of DOJ. So it's, it's an administrative agency. And in immigration cases where an immigrant is facing potential removal, um, they can apply for asylum. And the IJs uh, in those cases will make will make fact finding about whether that immigrant has a well-founded fear of persecution. Um, and if the IJ so finds, then the immigrant's entitled to asylum. So that kind of delegation, delegation for fact finding, uh, Justice Gorsuch says, is is fine. And then third, you know, when Congress delegates kind of non-legislative responsibilities, so. Uh, something that does not um, criminalize, something that, that does not otherwise regulate conduct of private parties, but instead is something that regulates how the agency itself operates. And so while the federal courts are not an agency, one of the examples he gave in his opinion is that it's okay for Congress to delegate to the federal courts their, its power to set their own rules. So while they, you know, they, they can't, they can't set their own rules about jurisdiction, they can set their rules about, you know, how long briefs have to be, how short they have to be, when they have to be filed, um, those kinds of matters. The, as a coda here in the dissent, Justice Gorsuch prompts one of these to be continued saying that this is not the last word that has been written by this court on the non-delegation doctrine and, and, and uh, expresses some, some hope that the court will return to it. Is that, uh, that correct? Yeah, you know, he, he said that, and, and um, what's particularly interesting is that, so it wasn't just Justice Alito and his concurrence that said, you know, we don't have a full court here, so I'm going to, you know, concur in the judgment with, with my liberal colleagues, but Justice Gorsuch also lamented uh, a number of times in his dissent that there wasn't a full court, um, and that if they had a full court, then you know, the full court should take up, um, again, retooling the non-delegation doctrine. And so it, it, it's interesting because, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Justice Kavanaugh is on the court. Um, and, you know, this, this may be, I'd say, I don't know if it's a footnote, it's certainly not an end note, um, because Gundy is not entirely final. The public defender who represents Mr. Gundy, you know, seized on Alito's comments and Gorsuch's comments about uh, the case being decided by uh, a shorthanded court and filed a petition for rehearing with the Supreme Court, asking them to set the case for argument, well, to vacate their prior decision, uh, set the case for argument again, and then have the nine-justice court resolve the issue. You know, ordinarily, um, rehearing petitions at the Supreme Court are, are dismissed out of hand. Um, the one exception is when there's a change in court personnel. I, I'm not familiar with any instance where the court is granted rehearing in a situation like this, where presumably the court already made a conscious decision to proceed with an eight justice court, even though the ninth justice was was sitting there in in, in the courthouse. Um, but certainly, this is a pretty close situation to the prior situations where they've granted rehearing based on a change in personnel. So, uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see um, what the court does. They, they looked at their hearing petition once already and then rescheduled it for uh, a further conference. Um, but I, I think that 
perhaps what Gorsuch was saying when he said he was hopeful that the court will revisit this issue again, that he was speaking both in the near term with respect to getting Justice Kavanaugh um, to take a look at this case, this particular case, and then also more broadly, um, that even if it's not this case, uh, that the court takes uh, uses it to take another look at the non-delegation doctrine with, that then there'll be another case um, for them to, to address the issue. And, and certainly, as I mentioned before about you know how um, in the wake of all the criticisms of Chevron and our petitions for certiorari started being written uh, to try to tee up the issue for the court, I think that litigants who have a potential non-delegation claim will will take the cues from Alito and Gorsuch and try to craft their petitions in such a way uh, to, to tee this issue back up. I mean, were it teed back up successfully and, and say now we have Kavanaugh um, engaged and, and able to to weigh in, say he supports uh, Gorsuch's view here and, and Alito could as well. You know, how, how much daylight do you think there is between the view that Gorsuch is putting forward and the one that Kagan outlined? Because as you know, we've spoken about, Gorsuch did outline a, a range of permissible situations where delegation is permissible. Um, so I guess how many, you know, how more, how much more tightly circumscribed are those situations than the ones in which Kagan's view would, would allow for, uh, for delegation? It's hard to say because I, you know, it, again, I think Reynolds made this case easy for Kagan to write. Again, not, not to necessarily garner, uh, even five votes, um, but easy to write. I, I don't know if she didn't have a prior precedent on the books that was recently decided interpreting the same statute, if she would have such an easy time writing writing a similar opinion, which means that I think if, if actually forced to confront, again, w- without the help of that prior precedent, if she was actually forced to confront a delegation that fell outside of the three areas that Gorsuch thinks are permissible, I, she may have to go along with them. So they they may not be that far apart. It's just it's it's really hard to say because this was a an odd data point um, in light of uh, the fact that Reynolds had just been decided you know seven years earlier on the same statute and um, at least as far as Kagan and uh, the three other liberals who joined her for the plurality were concerned, um, Reynolds you know took kind of half of the question off the table. Okay. Well, it sounds like we should stay tuned then for future non-delegation doctrine developments. But let's turn now to the, the second case we'll speak about, Kaiser versus Wilkie, dealing with uh, our deference, which you've spoken about. Just remind me one more time exactly how um, how this deference works. Uh, so, so our deference permits an agency to interpret its own prior ambiguous regulation and, and the key prerequisite is uh, ambiguity, um, and renders that subsequent interpretation, quote, controlling, um, that is, it requires courts to absolutely defer to it, unless, quote, the subsequent interpretation is plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the regulation itself. That sounds like a a good bit of of deference, then, that uh, requiring something to be plainly erroneous would, for the most part, leave courts sort of out of offering their their view. Right. So the, the, the controlling language is, I think, what has both provided a lot of ammunition to our critics uh, to criticize the rule. Um, and it's also led to, uh, you know, all the litigation that ultimately culminates in, in Kaiser itself, because um, some lower courts, you know, would point to the controlling language and say, well, you know, 
the agency's regulation was ambiguous, and here the agency offered a you know secondary or what I call subregulatory uh, interpretation of its initial regulation, and that was not plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the the primary regulation, and therefore it's controlling. Done. Some lower courts just stopped there. Um, other lower courts ha- have read or have applied a number of limitations that in application, the Supreme Court over the years has imposed on our, and so basically applied our much more narrowly. They made controlling lowercase c as opposed to capital C. Um, and, and those limitations are one, that the agency can't, uh, you know, be flip-flopping. Um, two, that the agency, um, has to, can't unfairly surprise people, uh, who, people or businesses that the agency was regulating. There really were two camps. There was one camp that applied a kind of almost rubber stamp version of our, and then there was another camp in the lower courts that that limited our. And of course, that divide is part of what led the courts to take up the Kaiser case. Uh, quickly, let's lay out um, the agency and, and the regulation being interpreted at issue here. We have the uh, the Board of uh, Veterans Appeals um, that the agency here uh, in question. Yes, right. So the, the regulation issue is one uh, of the Board of Veterans' Appeals, permitting it to grant retroactive benefits to a veteran with a disability on a claim previously denied if the veteran newly submits service department records that are, quote, relevant and that the agency had not considered in its initial denial. So here, Mr. Kaiser had his claim for benefits denied years ago and then found two new service records. Um, and the, the question became, were those records relevant? Um, and, and, and the real debate was, well, what does relevant mean? And although, you know, it's funny if you ask a trial judge, what does relevant mean? They can, they can tell you. Um, but here it was a matter of, of great dispute. Uh, Mr. Kaiser said they were relevant because they bore on some aspect of his claim for benefits. So basically he took the view that if these records would arguably entitle me to a form of relief, you know, money, um, then they're relevant. And the board took a much more constrained view and said that relevant means only documents that bear on the particular basis for the prior denial. So uh, this is a hypothetical counterfactual, but uh, you could say if Mr. Kaiser had initially sought benefits based on um, an ear injury um, and then came forward with documents relating to um, uh, PTSD, then the board would say the PTSD documents are not relevant because your initial claim only uh, sought benefits for an ear injury. Um, Mr. Kaiser would say, no, 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 you know, the PTSD documents are relevant because I can get relief for either of those two injuries. I had both, and I've only newly discovered the PTSD documents, so you should consider them. Um, and ultimately, uh, the Court of Appeals, and here it's the Federal Circuit, which uh, sits um, in an oversight capacity over the the Board of Veterans' Appeals and the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims, the Federal Circuit found the regulation ambiguous, so found the word relevant in this context ambiguous, um, and deferred to the Board's construction under our. Um, and that then, you know, teed up the question as framed by the petitioners, which is, you know, should this court overturn our, um, and, and the predecessor case on which um, our sits, Seminole Rock, um, or Bowles v. Seminole Rock. 
um, again, by a, a bare majority here, the court decides not to um, displace our deference. It, it uses it to affirm the lower court and um, accede to that interpretation by the, the Board of Veterans Affairs. So Mr. Kaiser remains out of luck here. Um, again, we have Elena Kagan writing the opinion of the majority. This time she gets to defect from the more conservative block, the chief justice. Um, but she does say our deference is not a rubber stamp. So what are its limits? Sure. So, uh, you know, um, and, and interesting, you know, side note, I, you know, Justice Kagan was, of course, you know, an administrative law professor um, and the dean um, at Harvard. So, it, you know, it's kind of unsurprising to me that she would, um, given that she was in the, among the majority, or even in, in Gundy, where it was a plurality, but you know, she was in the camp of of eligible of justices eligible to write the opinion. It's not surprising that um, that she would either take these for herself or that her colleagues would uh would assign them to her, um, given her interest and expertise in in the field. Um, as far as the limits on our deference, she said um, first, you know, she reiterated that our deference applies only when the regulation is actually um, ambiguous. So uh, that that requires, you know, statutory interpretation analysis effectively applied to regulations. So you look at regulation, and if it's not ambiguous, then, you know, there's no occasion to apply our deference in the first instance. Um, the second limitation is that the sub-regulatory interpretation has to be authoritative or represent the agency's official position. So, you know, a, a white paper posted on uh, an agency's website uh, would suffice, but minutes of a policy meeting between um, a number of you know, sub-cabinet level officials where those minutes were transcribed by one of the attendees' assistants, and even if that got typed up and put in a memo in some file that, and then later publicly disclosed, that would not you know, have, be the official position of the agency, I mean, I, I guess, unless the, the agency were to put it on their website and say, Look, this is now our, you know, our policy is embodied in these minutes. But absent some kind of official statement that the policy is official, uh, then um, our deference would not apply. Um, third, she said that the the subregulatory interpretation has to implicate the agency's expertise. And so uh, Justice Kagan um, gave an example of you know TSA actually having a fair amount of expertise about what may be in what could be an explosive or something masquerading as an explosive that uh, TSA would not want you carrying on the plane in your carry-on baggage? And she said, so TSA can determine that pate, uh, you know, because it might be plastic explosive, <laughs> um, you know, can be uh, prohibited in carry-on luggage. Um, that would be within their expertise. But an agency would not get our deference for determining something that, you know, anyone or a court um, is better suited to determine. So again, the example she gave is uh, that agencies don't get deference on determining who's a prevailing party entitled to attorney's fees in an adversarial administrative proceeding because you know courts courts do that all the time. They decide who's a prevailing party, and an agency doesn't have any particular expertise in determining who's a prevailing party or not. Um, and then finally, she said that the agency's position must reflect its considered judgment, which um, basically encompasses a, a number of subconcepts. Uh, it has to be the, the product of some study or reflection, not just a, a kind of a knee-jerk defense to um, a challenge in court. 
um, and also the sub-regulatory interpretation um, can't result in unfair surprise or conflict with the prior interpretation absent a host of really good reasons for the policy change. So what you may be hearing is that she she has effectively codified, I mean, codified is not what courts do, but she's, she's, she's enumerated or listed as bases for limiting and preserving our, a number of the things that were already um, lurking in the court's prior applications of our, um, or, or prior declinations to apply our in, in the last 60 years. One other thing it seems like she does too is, you know, in addition to saying, okay, the deference described in this doctrine is not absolute and uh, it does have some teeth um, or courts retain some teeth to, to overrule agencies. Additionally, you know, if our deference is a problem, it's one that can be solved easily enough by by Congress. It can be legislated out of existence. How how would that occur? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's funny because when we practice before the court, uh, it, it one of the the best kind of debaters' points is, oh well, Congress can fix that. Uh, but but as you and I discussed a few minutes ago. Congress isn't fixing much of anything these days. So I think as a practical matter, uh, it's, it's a little tough for her to say that Congress can fix it, but, but certainly as a technical matter, it can. Um, you know, Congress, Congress does have, or put on the books, the Administrative Procedures Act, which, uh, has a number of requirements for, you know, how formal rules are, are promulgated by agencies. You know, they require notice and public comment and waiting periods. Um, and then the APA also sets out how courts go about reviewing those rules and what the standard of review is, you know, arbitrary and capricious. So given that, that that framework is there for formal regulations, Congress could do any number of things. They could make <clears throat> all regulatory interpretations, whether formal ones or informal sub-regulatory ones, like the ones at issue in Kaiser, they can make them all subject to de novo review. Or Congress could simply say that sub-regulatory interpretations are also subject to the same arbitrary and capricious standard that formal regulations are subject to under the APA. Um, although I guess, that, I guess that begs another question, um, you know, how is arbitrary and capricious that different from uh, plainly erroneous? I, I don't know. <laughs> but so I guess long-winded way of saying, yeah, I think it's, it's, always, it's always an easy debater's point for an advocate or for uh, a justice, you know, defending their position and an opinion to say, well, you know, Congress can fix this, Congress can fix that. Um, I, I think in practice, it, it's more difficult. One other piece that we haven't really uh, regarded here yet that factors into this case is, you know, so folks watching would see this result as a, you know, a barometer of the court's opinion on administrative law and the administrative state, but also on the principle of stare decisis, because we're talking about, you know, a, a doctrine here that's been on the books for uh, several decades. And so, you know whether or not to displace it obviously implicates the you know, the idea of how free the Supreme Court should feel to overturn previous case law, and so here um, that also seems to factor in to uh, the majority's opinion, right? Yeah, I mean, certainly. Um, Justice Kagan talks about how stare decisis is another reason to not to not throw out our and Seminole Rock, um, and so I think in, in this in this case it operates particularly given the the limiting. Uh, or limitations that, that Kagan, again, I, I don't want to say, you know, uh, 
codifies or adopts because they, they kind of were already lurking there. But, but in light of the limitations on our that, that Kagan reaffirms <laughs> in Kaiser, um, here, stare decisis kind of operates like, you know, the, the constitutional avoidance principle, right? Which, you know, is that courts will interpret statutes to avoid constitutional problems. And so I, I think what she was basically saying is, look, stare decisis is another important concern of ours. We don't run around overturning our prior precedents absent really compelling reasons to do so. And here, in light of uh, how we've limited our, there's really no reason to then go ahead and, and throw it out altogether because everybody should be able to live with with the, the new version. And, you know, she was forced to address stare decisis because of the way the parties briefed it. And of course, I mean, as I mentioned, the, the the petitioners expressly asked uh, the Supreme Court to overrule our and Seminole Rock, so she she had to deal with it. But I think that there also was some appeal to her, um, and and probably the Chief Justice in joining her uh, to discussing the importance of stare decisis um, and and applying it here, because this this was a, a term where the court was in this thrust into the spotlight. Between losing Justice Kennedy, um, you know, who everyone jokes it was the Kennedy court <laughs> for the last two decades, um, losing Justice Kennedy, the contentious confirmation battle over Justice Kavanaugh, and then the fact that there were a number of cases before the court this term uh, that asked for for overturning um, prior precedents, and so I, I think that's that's one of the reasons why it was so appealing for her to resort to star decisis and do so the way she did. Okay. Um, let's just touch briefly on, on the dissent here. Now, again, we have uh, another one issued, uh, authored by Neil Gorsuch. He's joined now by justice Alito and, and Clarence Thomas and, and Brett Kavanaugh. Um, this is again, uh, a fairly manifestly angry, um, dissent. Um, a couple of pieces. One, he references that this, uh, our deference doctrine sort of, developed by accident? Uh, what is he talking about? I, I must confess, and, and disclosure, I, so I, I wrote an amicus brief in this case. Um, and there, I, I have to agree with him because we made the same argument in our amicus brief okay. that, that in some respects, our was a historical accident. So the backstory there is that in 1944, the Supreme Court issued a decision called Skidmore v. Swift, which held that agency regulations will be upheld so long as they have the power to persuade and Seminole Rock, you know, which is the precursor to our, basically applied Skidmore. Um, but in, in a single sentence of throwaway dicta, um, the, the court in Seminole Rock said, if the meaning of the regulation were in doubt, and of course, when the court uses those words, you know, if, they're, they're saying even if, right? And once you see, whenever you see even if in an opinion, that basically is signaling, we're, we're going to say is dicta. Um, so they said, you know, even if the meaning of the regulation were in doubt, the agency's interpretation would merit controlling weight unless plainly erroneous or inconsistent with regulation. So the standard that we've been discussing. Um, and in the decades following that controlling weight statement, you know, lay largely dormant. Um, but following Chevron and the passage of time, um, our in particular, you know, picked up on that statement and that gave rise to the current our, our doctrine we see today. And, and I, you know, Justice Gorsuch in his dissent kind of pointed that out that, you know, this, this critical language controlling weight unless plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the regulation, that it wasn't even necessary to the decision in, in Seminole Rock. And that really Seminole Rock and the cases for the ensuing decades up until our were just applying Skidmore. Um, but then along comes our, um, which incidentally involved 
a sub-regulatory interpretation offered by the government in an amicus brief. Um, and along comes Auer and says, yeah, we have to defer to that interpretation in this amicus brief, um, and it, it's controlling. And so, yeah, Gorsuch's first his criticism of, of the doctrine is that it, it shouldn't have even um, come to fruition. But, of course, it, it, it did, and it remains. One reason we spoke about the implications of stare decisis here, one reason why in, in Gorsuch's and the other dissenters' views that stare decisis shouldn't have that much importance or weight here is because though the doctrine has been you know on the books, it, it shouldn't be viewed as creating reliance interests on the part of the general public or folks upon whom you know the doctrine might bear. What exactly is he talking about? You know, the argument for keeping doctrine in place is Kagan elucidated that folks come to rely on the laws staying the way that they have been. So why in the dissenters' views are not much uh, reliant interest uh, in our deference? Well, I, I think this is another kind of debater's point. I mean, certainly, you know, the, the stare decisis decisions of the court over 200 years uh, have always talked about reliance interests. So, so Kagan has, you know, those statements to to hang her hat on. But I think what Gorsuch is saying is that, you know, the the people who need to be able to rely on court decisions, agency interpretations, they, they they're the people and um and and businesses. They're not the government. And so the only party here that really has has been relying on our is is the government and everybody else is is the little guy and so that that given that reliance interests are designed to protect the little guy then there the really is the reliance interest you know articulated by Kagan here is really just a debater's point because the government should not be able to complain about its need to rely on things the government can change its its conduct as it has to um, and then just to wrap up the dissent here um, some portentous words uh, written by by Gorsuch that this decision is merely a stay of execution, and so um, perhaps the court will um, revisit it and, and decide that uh, our deference is, is, should be, in fact, executed. Uh, tell me about that phrase and, and, I guess, how likely it could be that uh, what Gorsuch is saying comes to fruition, that we hear about this doctrine again soon, and that the execution actually goes uh, forward. <laughs> well, again, I, I think that Litigants, you know, as with the non-delegation doctrine, they will they will pick up on his cue and they will try to press cases to the court, presenting full uh, frontal challenges to to our deference. I don't see the court wading into it. You know, Kaiser it, it was a nine-justice court. They they decided to you know, reaffirm the limitations on it uh, on on our deference, and so I think the court's largely done with it. I know that Justice Gorsuch says that, you know, that, so the doctrine emerges from this decision, you know, maimed and enfeebled and in truth zombified. And then again, he's, he's hopeful that, you know, uh, that down the road in a future case, you know, they just euthanize it. Um, but I, I'm not sure that's really necessary. And I'm not sure when, that, when it comes to actually um, deciding what to put on their docket, they're going to think they need to do that. Because my, my, my best guess is that moving forward, um, the lower courts, which previously had, as I explained, kind of, you know, there was one camp that seized on the controlling language, <clears throat> and there was another camp that had seized on all the various limitations scattered throughout the Supreme Court's opinions. Now that the lower courts have 
you know, a roadmap in one place in the Kaiser opinion where Kagan, you know, lists all the limitations. Uh, I think that the lower courts will largely apply our the same way and it'll be in a, you know, limited way as compared to before Kaiser. Um, and that there won't be a, a need for the Supreme Court to step in and, and euthanize it. It'll just be a doctrine that's, that's out there, but, but a lot less salient than it was, um, I guess a year ago. You know, we spoke a lot about uh, Elena Kagan leading the way in both of these cases that you referenced, you know, the particular professional expertise she has that might explain that. But do you know, to any extent, do you feel that uh, she's something of a, a modern day Henry Clay in the judicial branch here, a great <laughs> compromiser she has roped in now, you know, Justice Alito and the chief in these opinions to, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in opinions that I'm sure were very divisive on the court. She's also towards the center of, you know, viewing justices from the liberal black and, you know, very um, manifestly, it seems, genial person that seems to get along with everybody. Um, how should we view her uh, role here in, in crafting some some compromises? She's really good at it. Uh, you know, and again, I, I think it, it comes from her being a masterful technician, you know, probably from some of her time as, as you know, Harvard's law school dean, where, you know, you have to be a, a savvy administrator, but also um, a, a good a good public face um, and, you know, somewhat of a politician. Um, as you noted, she's she's very, very affable. Um, and she has all the attributes to, to coalition build. Um, and, and she seems to uh, you know, have been able to do that. I guess one other thing I forgot to mention, you know, also, and you alluded to this, you know, she, she is more to the center um, than her colleagues in the liberal bloc. Uh, and I'm not sure where that comes from. It could just be, you know, the way that her her legal mind developed over time. It could also have been, you know, that she does share a, a key attribute with Alito and Roberts, which is um, they all served in the Solicitor General's office. Uh, you know, which is a, a special place. And whether, you know, Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, um, doing high level appellate work for the government has kind of a, a centralizing force on you. Um, and so, you know, I'm not surprised that she's more to the middle than Ginsburg, Breyer and Sotomayor, because as a government appellate lawyer, and in fact, you know, the government's appellate lawyer, she was the Solicitor General, um, you know, Roberts uh, and Alito were, were just assistants. I, it's going gonna, it's gonna to move her to the middle. And she's going to, you know, and she knows how to practice minimalism. And she um, understands the long game. Because, you know, another thing about being a, a government appellate lawyer is that th- there always will be another case to... Um, to test a legal issue because the government is such a repeat player. Well, it's largely the same. The same is true at the Supreme Court and with respect to its docket. There will always be another case um, for them to, uh, you know, refine a rule um, or revisit an issue. So I think you put all those things together, and and yet she has all the tools and all the attributes to be a, a consensus builder. And I think that's that's why we've seen her more than anyone else from the liberal wing garner so much uh, agreement. From her conservative colleagues, so you know, just looking at some of the statistics, the chief agreed with her 65% of the time this past term. Kavanaugh, 60%. Alito and Gorsuch, 55%. Uh, and Thomas is the only conservative member of the court who disagreed with her more than he agreed, and but he agreed with her still 46% of the time. So he's pretty close to 50-50. That's that is remarkable consensus building across uh, across the aisle, so to speak. Just one last one. You mentioned you know, how there is always another case. We've spoken about how um, 
potentially we could um, hear about the non-delegation doctrine again if uh, if Gundy is reheard, or if not, potentially in a, a similar case that might come up. He said our you think is maybe done for the moment, uh, but we haven't really had a case present squarely the, the doctrine of Chevron deference, sort of the you know the classic quintessential um, administrative law question. Do you think that might come before the court uh, anytime soon? You know, I, I still see litigants crafting petitions trying to to get you know all of these deference doctrines up before the court. Um, uh, the only case that I'm aware of that currently presents a Chevron question uh, on the court's docket for next term uh, is uh, Barton v. Barr, an immigration case. And again, after this close, I, I wrote an amicus brief in that case as well. Um, and it's interesting, interesting because in that case, Chevron may come up or it may not come up. Um, the, the issue there is that the INA provides that an immigrant can obtain cancellation of removal if he meets a number of requirements, um, including that he resides in the United States continuously for seven years. That that clock is stopped if the immigrant commits an offense that, quote, renders him inadmissible. And the, the BIA in this case had held that the clock is stopped so long as the offense that the immigrant committed is of a category of offenses that would render a hypothetical immigrant inadmissible. And of course, you know, the, the statute's language is is not not quite that broad. It says an offense that renders him inadmissible. Um, so the petitioner challenges the BIA's ruling, claiming that at minimum the offense must have been capable of resulting in inadmissibility, and because he was already admitted lawfully to the United States and not seeking readmission, uh, that this stop time rule has no effect. And here's where Chevron comes in, though. Uh, so in the lower courts, the government had defended the BIA's rule under Chevron. And accordingly, the petitioner in his opening brief to the Supreme Court um, attacks the government's reliance on Chevron. What's interesting and why I said that it, Chevron may or may not actually come up is that it's really going to be up to the Solicitor General here as to whether to, to put Chevron in the crosshairs. And I say that because Although the government defended the BIA's interpretation in the lower courts based on Chevron, in the Solicitor General's brief in opposition to cert, the Solicitor General made no mention of Chevron beyond uh, as a historical matter saying that Chevron had been invoked below. And, you know, while it's, it's not a guarantee that the merits-based arguments that you see in a brief in opposition will be in the merits brief or that the omission of a potential merits argument from a brief in opposition means that they'll similarly be omitted in the full merits briefing, it's a pretty strong signal. So if I had to place a wager, I would say the Solicitor General is deciding that he doesn't want to defend the BIA's interpretation here based on Chevron. Um, and, and we'll know in two weeks when um, the Solicitor General files his brief, his merits brief. Um, but if the Solicitor General does do, as I guess I would predict, and not invoke Chevron as a defense to the BIA's rule, then the Chevron issue will drop out of the case. But of course, if, if the SG does uh, raise Chevron as a defense, then uh, it could thrust the court right back into this uh, all over again. So it'll it'll be interesting to watch. Uh, well, we will certainly will be watching, and uh, but we'll leave it there for now. Uh, John Claude Andre, partner at Sidley here in Los Angeles. Thanks very much for being on our, our podcast. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Brian.
Okay, and that is our program for August 9th, 2019. Thanks one more time to John Claude Andre from Sidley here in Los Angeles for joining the program. Tremendously appreciated. Also, thanks to my production staff here, principally among them, Henrik Nilsson. And thanks to you, of course, for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget that CLA credit is available for you that have reached the end of the episode. Find it at dailyjournal.com on the page where this podcast appears. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.